Welcome to the first episode of another new subcategory of the Let Me Tell You Something overarching podcast universe. Yes, it's a new feature. We're calling this in its preliminary title, or what, what are we going to call it? So I, I thought we were doing LMTYS at the movies. For the time being, it's LMTYS at the movies. Uh, come back with some more suggestions if you have any, but we'll give you the contact details at the end of this episode. But by we, I mean your co-host, Lorca Mullen, and with me as always is your other co-host... Simon Cross. So, Simon, with this new series, it's also acting as a sequel to the crossover episode that we did with my other podcast, 21st Films, where I talk with a different guest about a film that was released 21 years ago. The only instance of a movie at that time that I could think we would be appropriate to talk about when thinking about movies from the year 2000 was the comedy wrestling road trip caper that was Ready to Rumble. Legitimately one of the worst films that came out of the year 2000. The word comedy is doing a lot of heavy lifting in that sentence. <laughs> and 21 years have done a no ju- no extra improvement, helped it age like a fine wine or anything like that. It aged like milk. But one of the things that we thought we'd do with that one is continue the crossover and talk about a film that would not appear in 21st film until, I guess, the year 2040? I thought it was 2019 this came out. According to um, Prime, when I like bought it anyway. Simon, Simon, I hate to break this to you, but 2019 plus 21. Oh, I'm having a mare. E- e- equals 2040. I'm having a western. So... What film are we talking about? The spiritual sequel, if not the actual sequel to Ready to Rumble, Simon. What's it called? Uh, You Cannot Kill David Arquette. Legends of Wrestling. One of the biggest events of the year. 10,000 fans in attendance as Ken Anderson takes on David Arquette. David Arquette is the wrestler sucks. I don't give a shit about David Arquette. It's the biggest disgrace in professional wrestling history. David An untrained Hollywood actor wins the most prestigious championship. His involvement in wrestling really hurt his career. Ten years of rejection, that's crazy. I want to clear my name and, through the process, honor wrestling. This ain't the movies. We don't have stunt doubles. I'd like to announce my return to professional wrestling. Do they wrestle again? What are your thoughts? Yeah. <laughs> That's my boy. Why do you want to get back in the ring? It's been 18 years of people thinking I disrespected wrestling. I'm just kind of sick of being a joke. There's a lot going on with David. His anxiety is crippling. Two years ago, it's a heart attack. A year later, it's a death match. So what does that mean for next year? The ribs actually break, they can actually bleed into your lungs. Wrestling's not fake, guys. Wrestling's not fake. Wrestling! You are godlike. You are the man. Up, it's his atonement 
four ready to run. Well, you mean he shags Kira Knightley against the library wall? Maybe in one of his like fever dreams or his ketamine dreams. That's harsh because he's it's, uh, it's okay. So I'm gonna have to jump ahead here because I brought it up. David's not a stable man by any stretch of the imagination. I think there's a there's a certain amount of instability in the entire Arquette family almost. Well, they sort of allude to it though because I think they 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 mentioned that there was childhood abuse coupled with the fact that David feels shunned both by his love, wrestling, and kind of by Hollywood, by getting typecast as a goofball. To be fair to... I don't think that wrestling was his love. I think wrestling was a a fun part of his life that maybe got taken away from him in his previous innocence when what happened with Ready to Rumble happened with Ready to Rumble and the subsequent world title run in WCW. Yeah. So, he was an actor of... Growing potential, I suppose, in the late 90s. So basically the the premise of this series will be for us to discuss any film or TV show for the most part. Maybe we'll extend into other areas as time goes on. But for now we're going with films and TV shows where wrestling is a part of the narrative. Not necessarily the, the whole part of the narrative... If it, it might be that we'll talk about an episode of a TV show that features wrestling in it. Like, say, the episode of Harry and the Hendersons with Hacksaw Jim Duggan making an appearance. That might be a future episode. Mm. And seeing how wrestling is portrayed through a separate presentation. Yeah. Through the eyes of a creative who may or may not know much about wrestling or care much about wrestling. Through an outside lens. Yes, not necessarily always an outside lens, but often, most times it'll be an outside lens. And this seemed like the perfect one to start us off with because we had the, the the logical thing for us to talk about for a film released in 2000, whilst we still had enough of 2021 for me to get you onto 21st film. And that's just what got us talking about, this is a logical thing to talk about, we can't talk about it on 21st film, let's put it in, let me tell you something. We always want to do new ideas, I think basically every year as the show goes on, I think we'll pick up a new concept, maybe we'll drop some concepts along the way. Uh, I can't see Dave Meltzer getting rid of the 5 star rating anytime soon, <laughs> so uh, we, won't, we won't be able to drop that. But we'll see, we'll see as time goes on. So, did you know much about this film before I said we should cover it, did you know much about what David Arquette was up to when he got involved in pro wrestling sometime around 2017 or 2018 again? I knew he'd got back involved uh, with it, and I knew about the Nick Gage incident prior to watching this. I don't really like sew it all together quite how serious he was about it, uh, which is something in this film really, really hammers home. Yeah. Uh, maybe because his wife's a producer on it as well as being in it, and his ex. Uh, to be fair, his ex-wife's in it, and which is uh, a little bit surprising for me. Ah, oh, they must really get on well. But when you got a co-parent, I guess you do, don't you? Sometimes I get the sense that one of the reasons that Courtney felt she had to leave David was that he wasn't going to improve. So it wasn't necessarily through her hating him. It might have been almost an element of her caring too much about him. Yeah. That's the impression I got from it. There doesn't seem to be any malice in Courtney Cox, once known as Courtney Cox Arquette, towards David. Otherwise, she wouldn't participate in this film, I would mm. think. And that's the thing. It doesn't seem like many people who know David hate David. And I guess that's where wrestling fans in this film are. I don't know how we're being portrayed. Are we being portrayed as almost the villains, the, the, the unrequited love? I'm not quite sure. And... What were your thoughts? What would your what were your thoughts of David Arquette going into the film, and what were your thoughts of David Arquette after the film? Oh, I went for a roller coaster of emotions regarding Arquette throughout this film. So I started off going, okay, I can see the premise. He's he's trying to redeem himself. Let let's see how he gets on it. it like that's a noble pursuit, so I'm backing him. Then throughout the film, I'm like, I don't know how okay this guy is. Like overall, like. Sh- at, like with everything he's got going on mentally, with his some of his physical ailments, is is he just doing something which he really shouldn't be doing? Especially, obviously, considering he has children. Then I went to the phase of thinking he's just like a lost little boy who's just trying to, like you know, right or wrong. I think one real moment that really hammers home uh, 
who David Arquette came across as as a person to me is the moment he went to Mexico and his wife immediately rings his friend and is like, can you go with him? Just just make sure I'd feel a lot better if you were there. Like, just keep an eye on him. Sort of like, you know, Gary Lineker said to Gaza, basically. It's, it felt very similar. But I don't know. I just want to make sure someone's there, just in case. By the end of it all, I, I have a lot of respect for David Arquette for what he does. He's a man who loves fun. And maybe loves fun at unhealthy amounts. Uh, but I think has a good enough support system to keep him in check and keep him relatively grounded. One thing... I want to say right away, one of my first notes was how much David Arquette's current wife looks a lot like his former wife, but, I mean, you don't want to say it, a a younger version of his former wife. Well, some people have a type, don't they? Like, there's nothing wrong with that. So this was felt like a film of two halves for me. Okay. And I wasn't really happy where it was going with the first half. Now, there's a certain subcategory of documentaries that are playing with the form and are playing with the sense that documentaries are supposed to be the real thing. You have the campaigning ones that are, you know, people accuse of manipulating footage or manipulating facts and figures. From Michael Moore on the left to dipshit Denise D'Souza on the right. Thankfully, I don't know who that is. (laughs) Yeah, and then there is the post-Awesome Wells F for Fake world of documentaries where you are playing with the audience and questioning how much they should trust what they're seeing. F for Fake was a documentary that Awesome Wells made in the 1970s about an art forger and forgery and trickery in general to the point that you then think as time goes on how much of what is being presented to us is true as well. Yeah. Is that kind of like mockumentaries? No, because that is literally taking the documentary format but making it clear that these are actors. I'm thinking more along the lines of Exit Through the Gift Shop. Okay. Where they're presenting it as a documentary. They're not telling you that this isn't real, but there's enough in there to make you suspect that it's not real. Right. And I wondered at the start if that's what we were being presented with in this film because there were enough things that didn't feel right that it felt like a worked shoot. But was this a film making a comment on the work to shoot? Or was it what I came to the conclusion that it was like, which was a film that had the visual trappings of a documentary, verite, showing it as it goes, and reality TV. It was essentially a classier-looking version of reality TV. In the, it just the editing's not quite as severe with the cuts, and the sound cues are not as ridiculous as, well, I liked it. Brum. Okay. When you said some stuff didn't seem quite right, could you give us an example? A lot of what happened in Mexico, the opening exchange with Brian Nobbs felt very much like a worked shoot. Yeah, okay, yeah, I can see the Nobbs stuff. I think Nobbs, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if it's a man who's just trying to look business-like whilst he's on camera or if it's just set up. But Nobbs was very corporate speaking, kind of, in a way. But not using corporate jargon, but you know what I mean? He was like trying to look very... It was. It had a bit of PR-ness to the way he was speaking, you know? They were pushing a narrative that David Arquette is a wreck and he doesn't have any interest in him, that there is no interest in him. So he goes to the signing convention and no one wants his signature. I don't believe that was the case. I believe that he was probably as popular as anyone else at that show, but they wanted to do the scene like in The Wrestler where it's a poor, sad sack. So they need to... They might have filmed it... They might have filmed it before anyone had gone into the venue. Very possibly. Yeah. The whole stuff with him in Mexico, very clearly there's a lot of fabrication and things being set up. Him going to the backyard wrestling match and that being the opening thing and him being taught a lesson on if he wants to get in the biz by a bunch of people who are very much not in the biz. Yeah. That whole thing, that's not the first and only thing that David Arquette would be able to get booked for. That's just not the case. There would have been interest in him by all these people that he ends up getting booked into, whether he got trained up properly or not. And for those who... Don't believe us. Just look at how the levels of celebrity that have been brought into certain wrestling federations over the years. David Arquette's a notch above that. I mean, yeah, it's certainly better than Kelly or Ho- Kelly and Hoda or Lavar Balls. Is Lavar the dad? You know the one I mean, like the uh, the weird guy who took his shirt off. 
Yeah. Or David Arquette claiming that for the past 10 years he's just lost all every audition he's gone to. Well, if you look at his filmography, there are very few years where he's not got at least two or three films in his filmography. And some good ones as well. If you want a really, really good film that David Arquette is in, and this would have been filmed like a year or two before he would have started all of this pursuit, then see him in Bone Tomahawk. He's a man that's kept working, just not to the level that... If you appear on the front cover of, of the Vanity Fair stars to watch the new generation of Hollywood. Yeah, and oh my god, he, he was amongst that that's a that's like the two thousand two draft class. Look at that. Yeah, but there were a couple of I wish I knew an American footballer that had a really bad post draft one. Cause I was looking at it. But Robert Griffin the third that was injury based. Well I guess Tim example. Tebow in a way, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. So the ones I could see were Tim Roth, which seemed like an odd choice to have in this appearance anyway at that point. But it's Tim Roth, Leonardo DiCaprio, Matthew McConaughey. They're the three that are on the cover cover, not the pull out full thing. And then on the other side, there's Benicio Del Toro, Michael Rappaport, Stephen Dorff. Dorff is probably similar to Arquette's level, I suppose. Yeah. The one that I did not recognize... He was down as like Jonathan Schnitt something. I did not know who he was. I mean, if you don't know, I won't know. Then it was David Arquette, Will Smith, and Johnny Depp. That's the key, I think. That he's his page. He's sharing it with Will Smith. What a bookend, by the way. Your penultimate and final on your pullout are Will Smith and Johnny Depp. That is insane. When you think about it now, that's insane. That those are like the, the tail enders. That's your Jimmy Anderson coming out to bat is Will Smith. The class of actor that Arquette was linked with in 96. 96, the Vanity Fair? Did you say it was? I think it's something like that. It would be 90. Now, Ready to Rumble is 2000, as we've discussed. So So this would have been when he's like Scream. Scream 1, Scream 2, period. It's kind of a big gear shift, isn't it? (laughs) To go from like that to Ready to Rumble. Which they sort of cover by saying he got typecast. Now... Uh, Lorcan, you're obviously more film orientated as me. Do, do, do you suspect that was the case or not? Oh, oh, I was wrong. That wasn't Johnny Depp at the far end. That was Skeet Ulrich, whose whole thing was not Johnny Depp. Ah. But that was his fellow Scream co-star. Right. And the other guy is Jonathan Sheech. Jonathan Skeech? He was married to Christina Applegate for six years. Not bad And he going. was in That Thing You Do. That's his most famous role. He was in that thing you do. Uh, pass. Mm. We already said, though, when we were watching Ready to Rumble, he doesn't have that quality in him. He's an eccentric. He's of that group like... He's not a leading man like those people. He's of the group that is like Crispin Glover, Matthew Lillard, the the top of the, ra- top of the pile being Nicolas Cage, who was a leading man for a weird... For for a period of time, but it was always I think I was always going to be finite as far as big Hollywood A lister. <laughs> but he's of that that ilk that brings an eccentricity to his performance that when you cast it right it works, but when you cast it wrong it it, it can fail spectacularly badly. It's very noticeable when it's not smooth but casting. What I will say about David Arquette watching him in the wrestling matches is you can see that he's a good actor. Just in the fact, when we always compliment certain wrestlers on being really good at facial expressions. Yeah. He is one of the most expressive wrestlers I've seen, and he makes it work. And I think what I can say with confidence is that if he'd have pursued it during his lifetime, David Arquette would have probably been an okay wrestler. Yeah. He would have definitely made it in the... Maybe he would have become a, a manager if he'd have come around during the territory days. Oh, yeah, you could smell that. The tallest you? guy. No. But when he's reacting in the ring, that's the key. My favourite bit in the whole film was when you're watching him doing the match with RJ City on Championship Wrestling in Hollywood. Oh, yeah. And it's interspersing between them talking about what they're going to do with what they do in the ring. I, did, I like that shot as well. I think that was very clever. And what you can see is that Arquette gets the performance element of it because he's a good actor. Yeah. So he, I would get him to train wrestlers in facial expressions if I could. And 
he has timing and he has movement and he has enough athleticism. You can see the way that he moves in the ring. He knows how to time the pace. Probably he's done stunt. He probably did training for stunt sequences and everything like that in acting. From a physical from a physical standpoint, it's damn impressive how he looks come the end. Uh, the guy who's fifty and had had a heart attack the year before. Yeah, and you know a guy. I think they, did they say there was like some like fractures his lung, his ribs early on as well. Mm. So he's got that to think about too. Which makes the uh, the the bumping in the middle of the road in Mexico like. Say what you will about, like, sewn together, but you can't fake a tarmac bump. That's a case where I was looking it up, because I was wondering, is this something they've literally invented for this film? And it's not invented for this film, but it was a thing that was featured in Vice News. So these people obviously were looking up for unusual places for him to go to learn how to wrestle. They saw the Vice video on this went there and did it with these guys. And it was the same thing with the stepladder setup and every every sequence ending with a chair to the face. Yeah. And then, I mean, to be fair, that that is a thing within Mexican wrestling as well, that after they have a great match that people will throw uh, money, money at the ring. Them. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas in British culture, you, you throw money at people you hate in like Derby football matches. <laughs> yeah. Not just Derby County football matches, just to be clear. Yes. But if it's Derby County against Nottingham Forest football matches. Absolutely. Brian Clough loved us. No, Brian Clough loved us. He was our real dad. He was our real dad. Bag on. You're going into League One. No, you're going into League One. Kids, kids. You're both going into League One. (laughs) So, like I said, the first half of this film bothered me because I felt like I was going down a reality TV show world. And I was like, why is DDP in Mexico? Oh, he's in Mexico so that he can go uh, to Tijuana to meet the street wrestlers and do stuff with them. Yeah. Why was he going to the backyard thing? Because he needed to have the crap kicked out of him. And take light tubes as well. That was the moment where I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to enjoy this. The whole backyard thing and them all saying, he wants to make fun of our business. He was going to learn a lesson. And, and the ropes could bear. Like, I've seen wobbly ropes in my time. But my goodness. And the ring breaks halfway through and it's just But like, again, oh. how much of that was them setting it up for to point out how carny as shit this whole thing was? Or how carny as shit it can be. So the whole narrative that they're obviously setting up from the start is that he needs to gain respect from wrestlers and wrestling fans. Because you see right at the start, the first thing you see is Ric Flair sitting down on a chair, him being shot from underneath, up in the air, called the Godfather of Pro Wrestling and then playing Cod Godfather music underneath him when he's talking. The very Italian Richard Flair. (laughs) Oh, dear. The other thing I want to bring up is another film that's an example to compare this to, along with things like FFA. And documentaries have been dealing with reality from the start. The first famous documentary film in the 1920s was a film called Nanook of the North, where this filmmaker claimed to have gone up to see uh, Inuit people and document how they live. But what he actually did was he got them to recreate ways that their ancestors had lived like a hundred years ago. And then he presents it to the rest of the world like this is how these unusual people are like now. Right. There's always been artifice in documentaries and you just got to dig a bit deeper to find it out. But also the performance art element of it. The other thing you can compare this to, and he's an actor that maybe is the other side of the David Arquette coin. If David Arquette's the one that did the shitty movies and got the mockery of all people around them. Joaquin Phoenix is the other way around. A similarly oh, person, yes. also of a family of actors, also brought up in a commune where they were treated quite weirdly. Yep. And he also did a documentary which was a fake, basically a fake thing where he said he quit wrestling, uh, he quit acting it's called I'm Still Here and become a hip-hop artist. And, of course, famously, he went on the David Letterman show where, of course, Andy Kaufman and Jerry Lawler had done a worked <laughs> shoot there as well and confused everyone. And it basically turned out he was playing a character. And it was for an art piece that he and Casey Affleck thought would be hilarious. But I think most people were kind of like, can you just go back to acting now? Yeah, it's like, all right, yeah. It... And then he, then he made The Master, like, a year or two later. Yeah. And is now, maybe, now that Daniel Day-Lewis is retired again, maybe the actor that 
some many would argue is the the greatest working at the moment. That's why I don't like that because I think he it thinks it's cleverer than it is. I don't like the idea that they think they're working me, and you know I don't like work shoots in wrestling, even less so work shoots in documentary. Which is about wrestling. <laughs> yeah. When you're claiming this is a documentary, really, I don't think until David Arquette starts going to the real wrestling shows that it becomes a documentary and it becomes something else. And they keep adding these narrative devices. Like, the first thing that we see is Mr. Anderson cutting a wrestling promo in black and white, yeah. throwing around weightlifting gear because he's so angry at David Arquette. So it's obvious that there's, like, an angle shot for... A proper match. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's meant to be like the payoff at the end is him going and wrestling Mr. Kennedy in the main event of an of a show with ten thousand fans. First of all, that arena ain't holding ten thousand fans. Maybe ten thousand people attended the convention, but they were not all at that match. Second of all, I really doubt that match was the main event of that event. I don't think that they're drawing in that much. I think it was a match on the card. I don't think it was the main event necessarily of the card. Well, let's get a cage match. What, uh, yeah, that's look. the logical thing to do. We should have done it during that time. One other thing I will say as well about that final match at the end is Mr. Anderson should have kept that vest on during the whole match. <laughs> Bless him. There's a man who uh, squandered some opportunities. David Arquette of wrestling. <laughs> kind of. Kind of. Also, one other thing I didn't need to see, I didn't need to see that much arsequette in a, whole, in a film either. Where he gets the uh, fake tan, and we see him get the whole fake tan. Oh, yeah. That was... Cocks, with the sock cock, or the cock sock. And him then saying, oh, no, I should have been at that movie. Like a sitcom bit. Oh, no, I'm three hours late for work. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Okay, so that was the 20th of April 2019. Let's just click on this. And they made it the whole full circle because they said the year before he wasn't allowed in because that was the thing where the work shoot with Brian Nobbs. And then the end of it is him being able to main event the same show a year later. I just call bullshit on that. Okay, according to the card, he was match five in a nine match card. There we go. That ain't the main event. That's like after intermission is what you got. Yeah. And they make a whole thing about him or when he was a kid being in love with Miss Elizabeth. So his wife dresses as Miss Elizabeth for his entrance, but he doesn't dress as Randy Savage. So it makes very little sense. Yeah. He he really loves those streamers. He does. <laughs> like It's like, all right, I'll ditch all the magician things, but I'll do the streamers. He's a bit of a klepso, isn't he? When you go to his like lockups and that, it's like, why do you still have... The, where did these things come from? Yeah. Maybe he's a hoarder. He's a lot of different things. Yeah. Uh, he's clearly an alcoholic. He's clearly got substance abuse issues in the past. But then you get worried about, like, so he's trying to do these stuff, but is he almost leaning into his his struggles for the sake of this movie? And that's another thing that makes me nervous, that you play with these things. It's like putting alcohol in an alcoholic's dressing room before an interview. And that's what people would do to get funny things on the TV. I didn't think I'd get a Jeremy Kyle comparison. Well, it's not just Jeremy Kyle, but that is one of the best examples of that. Yeah. I don't know. Like that, that, Again, I'll go back to the ketamine injection scene, which is weird. Like, you could yeah. just say, like, it's going through... Pro- I, I, I mean, is it a little bit too... How much too... ketamine were they putting in him? That's what was worrying me. That can't be, like, pure... That can't be neat. That's got to be cut with something. I've never taken ketamine. Some of my friends have. Have you taken ketamine? I have not, No. No. Weird that we're talking about ketamine, which is now the second most popular horse-based drug in the United States. But there we are. That, the key is, are they, are they documenting events, or are they creating events to document them? I, I get what you're saying. Does Arquette get drunk and start dancing around on the table, because this will look good for him when he's down on his luck? How much of this is manipulation of David Arquette, or how much is David Arquette thinking he can ride this wave? Because it's obvious that David Arquette rides things to the to the edge. He ultimately, I think one of the reasons he's doing all this wrestling, even to the point of doing deathmatch wrestling, is he's a junkie for various adrenaline rushes and experiences. Yeah. I just do not believe that pretty much any of the first half of this film is really anything other than take two. 
That's my thing. When I see documentaries where I can hear them saying take two, that's what bothers me. If it's not like recreations, like in an Errol Morris film. Yeah. And that's why I love wrestling so much, because it's all one take. Yeah. It's a one take fight sequence. And the fact that David Arquette can do that at least well enough is a real testament to him. He goes out and has 5, 10, 15 minute matches. And another thing I think was key in those matches when they work with him right is that they're doing it that he will take a shit kicking and then find an opening through luck if yeah. nothing else. And then surprise the guy with some moves that he's learned. He's never, it never seems in any of these matches. Maybe we should do a David Arquette match for a match of the week later on. He never is like dominating a guy. He's never like their equal. Like it's clear in the RJ City match that he's keeping up as best as he can despite his limitations. Mm. And he's surprising people that are underestimating him. Like when he has the match with Nick Gage, the first, like his whole thing is that he's this goofy. It's, it's kind of like a precursor to the Matt Cardona stuff. He's this goofy, nerdy guy, and Nick Gage is the real deal. It's MDK all effing day. And Nick Gage charges at him, and he moves, and he manages to hit a chair, and that's the start of him getting in trouble. He absolutely Billy bears that chair of his face as well, doesn't Nick Gage? Gee, I mean, we've talked about Nick Gage a lot in passing before. He does not do things by halves. So with the whole Nick Gage thing, I think that was, again, them looking at the wrestler. I think they looked at the wrestler as the blueprint and saw how much of this can we put onto it. So instead of him being a has-been wrestler, he's a has-been movie star. I mean, he's even got, like, the, the same sort of tights and elbow pads as Mickey Rourke has in The Wrestler. Okay. He's of a similar age as The Wrestler, and he's got the kind of in-shape body, but there's wear and tear of it, mm. of The Wrestler. So it's almost like a documentary remaking a fictional film, <laughs> where it's usually the other way around. And one of the things is, Mickey Rourke has the death match, And that's one of those ones where I say, until recently... That is not a believable thing that a character like Randy the Ram Robinson, if he was, as he presented, like a Hulk Hogan, Lex Luger-esque figure of the 1980s, he wouldn't descend to doing deathmatch wrestling. Unless he's Terry Funk or whatever. But it seems like, as time has gone on, and now we've had maybe the apex of it, the the final point, with both the deathmatch of John Moxley and Kenny Omega bringing in the sort of FMW style of it, and Nick Gage and Chris Jericho having the national TV show in front of a million viewers, having a match with light tubes and glass. I would assume gimmicked to a certain degree for Jericho to have done it. I will never, ever get used to that stuff. And what's so fascinating as well was one of the things I'd misunderstood, because I thought what had happened was, because I'd seen the image of him hitting Arquette over the head with light tubes. Yeah. And he said he got like a deep cut. I'd always assumed that was what had done it. Like, it had gone wrong, and it had hit him in the neck. But what actually happens is that he's, like, on top of him, and it seems like it's... The story seemed like it was going to be Arquette has lost it at last. He's, like, bringing out... He's brought out... Nick Gage brought out this animalistic side, and he was actually going to try and beat the shit out of him from a mount position. Yeah. But what seems to have happened, after Nick Gage has known how to work the edge of the... Light tube. Fluorescent tube, so that he... The classic spots of gouging it in their head putting the pizza cutter across their mouth. Nick Gage will know what to do so that it doesn't look as bad as it does, but it looks bad. Yeah. What seemed to happen was he had it in his hand. Arquette turned the wrong way too close to the jagged end and it cut him in a way that neither was expecting. Yeah. And you just see him go into shock. And it's fascinating to see the difference that obviously what Nick Gage does for the most part is worked in a way that they don't, that doesn't happen. And they know how far to go to not cause a deep cut, to just cause a superficial cut. Mm. But it's clear something's gone wrong from it in the moment, and he is just on adrenaline, and he knows that he's in trouble. What amazes me is he goes back in the ring and they work a finish. Yeah. That absolutely shocked me. I assumed he just walked to the back immediately and went into the hospital. The thing is, David Arquette didn't need to do a death match. It's either he's an adrenaline junkie and he wanted to do it, or they thought it'd be good for the movie. And again, that's the thing of... Are you documenting a person, or are you creating events to document? Or possibly he what he thought it was a shortcut to respect. No, I don't believe that. I think they thought this will be good for the movie. Okay, I, I don't know. I think there is a part of me that thinks Arquette would have been like, "Oh yeah, cool. If I do that, then people will know I'm serious about this." Or rather, if he was told this is an idea we've got, that would be his response to it. 
I just think they looked at the wrestler and thought, okay, this is one of the other things we need to do. This is a story beat for this documentary. Right. Okay, no, I, I get that. I get that. I think both could be true. Unequivocally agree upon is, thank God Luke Perry was there. <laughs> well, that was that was crazy as well. I thought that, but I didn't recognise him because he had the beard and he'd aged a bit. Yeah. I thought that was like the director. I See, the first time they showed, I think they referred to it earlier, or they have it in the titles or something like that. I'm like, who's that? And it's not until I see Jungle Boy sideburns and go, oh, that's bloody Luke Perry. <laughs> well, yeah, it is funny when you see all these people that you know from, especially from AEW now on the periphery or around it. Peter Avalon seems to have actually been David Arquette's real trainer, not the, yeah. like the Luch people or the or the guy that he comes in for one lesson. Yeah, you do see all sorts. You see Ethan Page. As I say, RJ City's featured quite heavily. Yeah, you do see Ethan Page. You see Jerry Lawler. You see Booker T. With Jerry Lawler, you see them recreating an element of the Andy Kaufman thing. And at one point, he's wearing the greatest women's wrestler or intergender wrestler in the world. And he says, I'll sue you. So they're obviously him and Lawler that night did a whole Andy Kaufman homage thing. And unfortunately, Joey Ryan, you also see. There's some key quotes I, I wrote down as it was going along. Okay. David Arquette saying, I'm a carny at heart. And I think that's probably is like, I think a lot of actors are carnies at heart as well. Yeah. And what are carnies? Grifters. What is this movie? Kind of a grift, in my opinion. Kind of a work. And at the same time, he's talking about he's a carny at heart. And we also find out that that heart has two stents and he's taking blood thinning medication. Oh, that doctor. He's like, what are you doing? (laughs) He's like, do you watch wrestling? No. If you're part of the joke, it's better than just being the joke. That's where you're playing up the tragedy and the sadness of Arquette that I think because of his goofy persona, people kind of think he's the ditz. And he's obviously more talented and more aware than that, but he can do the ditz very well. Yeah. And there is ditziness at the heart of him. You know, the fact that he has a garden where every he's sitting on overgrown chairs and... What's with that tennis racket? Well, it's because it's his idea. He likes... You know, yeah. I guess he thinks he's like Alice in Wonderland. He's taken the... What is it? Mushroom or whatever it is that Alice takes that, that uh, makes her shrink and then makes her grow. This is my favourite line, though, as well. It was his teenage daughter saying to... I can't remember if she says it to David or to Courtney Cox when she shows footage of it afterwards. I was a lot less embarrassed than I was before. It's like, that's as good as you're going to get yeah. with teenage daughters. <laughs> that is a triumph. <laughs> Oh, you saw Frankie the Clown as well? Yes. Yeah. Oh, he's Uh, doing things. Mick Foley, Marco Stunt, Bubba Ray Dudley. You see that he puts him through a table at one point. The Sandman. Timothy Thatcher. He has a match with Timothy Thatcher. So I think a lot of wrestlers saw it as like, okay, what can I do with this guy? This is a challenge for me. Yeah. And also, if people are filming, exposure to exposure. Billy Corgan, we see at one point. I think he's about like he's having to get his head shaved or something. What strikes me, I think, about all of like those wrestlers is Arquette like genuinely looks like a kid in a in a sweet shop when he's around them as well. He's like, Oh, I'm around these people. These people are working with me. Yeah, well he wants to be part of the group, yeah. Again, I just wonder how it edits as it goes along. Because they're clearly pl- paying it as like after the after the Nick Gage match, he doesn't really want to do it anymore. Almost like he's suffering from PTSD, and they're implying that he's relapsed. How much of this is him acting? Because mm. if he's not acting, I don't think this is a very morally good thing for everyone involved. No. You have enough footage, make of it what you can. You don't have to stick around for this. But I do feel like we get enough of David Arquette. Maybe in the parts where he's talking to the family and the friends and the people who aren't involved in the wrestling aspect of it, and they're just talking about him. Yeah. And you get that the people that know him, his, his sisters, who both clearly care for him dearly don't necessarily understand it, but they have a shared experience of an eccentric father and seemingly a very unpleasant mother as well. Yeah. I think the problem I have is that they came in with an idea when I think they should have just taken what is already an interesting concept in and of itself and done it truthfully, not tried to enforce an arc either through premeditated means or through editing of its subsequent. Do you think it's a case of they didn't rely, they didn't think Arquette was reliable to deliver it? Arquette's arc in his head of I will like do this and I will like therefore like be less of a joke than I was 20 years ago I think they figured whatever was going to happen something interesting would happen whether it was going to be redemption or not 
then fine, we make a tragedy. But they're going to try as much as they can to get the redemption out of it. And that's what makes you wonder how much of the drunk scenes are him being actually drunk. Like that first scene with him set getting in a fight trying to get booked for Brian Nobbs. Yeah. I think that was him playing drunk. I think that was him. Everyone involved in that was working it to make to get the attention to set up. Because this is what we're going to do for a year. And this is going to be the end of it a year later. That's how I feel. And so knowing these manipulations... I, I was qualified with how much I was enjoying it, but I knew that I was seeing enough when he's actually on the road, in the ring, doing stuff, dealing with wrestlers, and actually as w- combined with enough about the real David Arquette and his struggles. And I think he really just wanted to get some gigs. He's clearly someone that likes performing, and he wasn't getting enough acting jobs that were giving him more. Obviously, he was probably losing 10 years' worth of auditions, and everything that he was actually getting in was stuff that he was just being offered without properly auditioning for anything big. It is weird when you see that. It's like when you see Chris Klein, and this is like a decade since his American Pie fame, trying to get into Mamma Mia. And it's like, wow, they they still go and they still hustle. It's amazing. Like, even like Scarlett Johansson will have to audition still for certain roles. Like oh yeah, she was. It was down to her, and uh, who was it? Rooney Mara as to who was going to play Elizabeth in the girl with the dragon tattoo oh okay and so she had to do come in for costume tests and screen tests and all that sort of stuff scarlet joe bloody hansen has to do that they're grifters as as you say if she has to do that then what does david arquette have to do exactly uh they also said oh sorry scarlet you're in here for the wrong audition this for the male no i'm here for the right audition Sorry, Scarlett, we're, we're here for Harriet Tubman. Uh, aud- and I'm in the right audition. <laughs> <laughs> I think also there was stuff in the in the credits that I thought they should have found a way to fit this into it. Especially like Brian Pillman Jr. saying about how every dollar that he made from his first run in 2000 went towards his family and Owen Hart's family. Yeah. And I guess maybe it's because, well, we... we and there's bits with MJF. There's loads of there's loads of really fun bits in the credits that I was like, I would have interspersed a lot more of this and had a lot less of him in a backyard wrestling fed in order to pad your three-act structure out. Yeah. It's a very sweet epilogue with Jungle Boy that I think was added after the fact because of Luke Perry's passing, mm. uh, which meant a lot more than it did the Mr. Anderson yeah. fifth match in the card main event, apparently. <laughs> You could tell that, like, when Luke went, it, it probably did hurt Arquette a lot. And and it's always that, you know, it's a, it's a cliche. And we were talking about if we ever do write that Monday Night's War script, what, what will be our block of text at the end of the movie to tell you what really happened afterwards? Yeah. And for this one, it was David Arquette was ranked in the PWI Pro Wrestling Illustrated's 500 Best Wrestlers in the World. I don't think that means what they think it means. <laughs> Still... From a man who was like, you know, just a dweeby little joke. For him to get that means something to him. He was ranked 453 that year. Still. Yeah. So, I want to ask you to rate this on two levels. Okay. I want you to rate it as a work of art, as a documentary. You can do it as a grade or an out of ten or, or whatever. And what would that be? Just as a general documentary, five, six, just very middle of the road. Yeah, I go with a six that's closer to a five than it is a seven. Okay. This the second half brings it up to a six. How would you rate its depiction of wrestling? <sighs> that is a tale of two halves, in a sense. Because the main way I, main way I like to interpret it is depicting one man's trying to make it up to his past like his hobby uh in our cap the carniness of it obviously in tijuana and the backyard fed that's there's always going to be an element of like ott carniness in an outsider's portrayal of wrestling um and whilst our is a fan i don't really believe that the uh the people shooting the film were wrestling in terms of like an art form though again when you flip to the second half when you start getting into rj city territory i think it does a very good a fairly decent job so what would you give it uh overall how many how many turnbuckles out of 10 would you give it how many 
How many light tubes to the head would you give it? Overall, six, closer to seven. The second half, again, do, doing lifting work for that. Yeah, I think I would, I would probably go seven, because I like that it shows the wide world of wrestling. It's not just what so many people think it's the WWE. I remember when Richard Herring was going to interview Mick Foley for the Edinburgh Fringe one year. And he said, this man is the biggest Wikipedia article I've ever seen. Do there need to be this many wrestling federations? How many wrestling federations are there? So to show to people, because I'm always curious, that was the other thing. I would, if I could have done anything, I would have loved to have had, like, we find someone who's not a wrestling fan in our lives to watch it as well and just tell us what they thought of it. Not having yeah. to be the, first, the same person each time either. Um, but I think they would find it. I don't know that they would get the full picture of what wrestling is. I think they would think, I'm I'm curious as to what they think of deathmatch wrestling. I think they'd be kind of freaked out by it, especially by the David Arquette cuts. Yeah. So I don't know if people would think more highly of wrestling from watching it. I think they would maybe appreciate it as an art form, as something like like what 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 it takes to be a part of it. But whether they would think it's an industry that they have more admiration for, I'm not sure. When you consider the carnies, the backyard wrestlers. And the deathmatch wrestlers and these mm. dingy rings and ugly places and small arenas. Crowded bars. Yeah. Uh, indie wrestling fans who are one of the... They do interview one indie wrestling fan who says it's like his life is kind of traveling to indie shows and trying to get them to explain why David... And they're never, you know... They're never great physical specimens. <laughs> Uh, one of them said, "We're the lifeblood of pro wrestling." It's like that lifeblood has a lot of watsits flying through it, <laughs> through it and clogging the arteries. Jesus, I mean, you're right. It's true, but you shouldn't say it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm I'm part of the problem. And I'm not part of the solution. I would, yeah, I would go about six to a seven. The people involved, I think, like wrestling too. Cool. Uh, they maybe aren't like big experts on it, but I think they're intrigued enough by it mm. to want to document it. They might be people that see it through Vice documentaries and things like that and think, okay, this is where we want to pursue it. Okay. Um, I, I can imagine that they're wrestling fans, but um, maybe lapsed wrestling fans. So, I would recommend people watch it. It's a, it's a nice, breezy 90... Well, it's not breezy, but it's 90 minutes. It's not a tough watch. Well, it is a tough watch in a couple of places. Yeah. But it's got enough in it to recommend it without it being a home run. I think what does it a lot of favours is it's is it is a film. Like if this was like mm. a series, I don't think it would have like held together by any stretch of the imagination. I don't think you could stretch this out to a series anyway. Most docs wouldn't work like that. Here's a question for you. Before people watch You Cannot Kill David Arquette, should they watch Ready to Rumble? <sighs> Yeah, I, I would say no, you don't have to, but to truly appreciate, because they, they go, oh, here's the film, here's what fans thought of it. To get your own opinion of just why he feels the need to do that, I would recommend that you watch the film, but it is not compulsory viewing to do so. Okay. So, that has been our uh, first episode of a new series. I think maybe for the next one, I mean, let's let's talk about some other ones. We are the ones that you definitely want to cover for this show. I really want to talk about Glow. Same. Yep. It's a real shame that I didn't get the third season. It needed to uh, tie things up. Was it third or fourth? Yeah, but it needed that final season to tie it all up. There's the new one with uh, Stephen Amell. Uh, we need to take a look at. Yeah, that's a rational one. We should probably do that maybe at the end of the... Se- maybe before season two starts. If there let is it be out two. for a little bit. Let, 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 it... Yeah, let it simmer. Yeah. And what else is there? I mean, you don't want to just repeat everything that Wrestling With Regret does. Uh, no Holds Barred, I think we'll have to do. Yes. Because that's Vince McMahon's idea of movie wrestling. <laughs> have you seen the new thing? The news that's come out today about WWE have done something with Netflix... It's an interactive movie where the New Day go into the Undertaker's haunted house. I have not, but that sounds so WWE. Yep, it certainly does. That might like for ki- for kids, it might work. I don't. We're not the target audience for that, so yeah, that, I'm not going to sneer. Okay. Until I've seen it, if it's sh- if it's shit for kids, I'll sneer. Well, oh, walk like a panther. We should do that one actually, because that's not bad enough for best of worst of British. 
Actually, let's make that the next one because we'll go British next one. Wasn't there? Oh, wasn't there one in like the seventies? Yeah, I mean, like Carl Gotch have a role in it. I'm trying to remember. I can't yeah. remember off the top of my head. Well, there's one called The Wrestler from the seventies. There's another which has Vern Garnier in it. You might be thinking Vern Garnier instead of Carl Gotch. I am. Yes, it is that they, one. I, they yeah. talk about that on wrestling with regrets, so we don't want to cover too much of the same ground. Give it a bit of a burst. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So let's say that's the next one we'll do. Walk Like a Panther with Stephen Graham. Uh, maybe I'll add that to the best of worst of British feed, but it's not quite Boab worthy. <laughs> but anyway. Worthy, worthy is an interesting word. There. Yeah. So thank you for listening to us. Next week, we have it scheduled to be match of the week, Shawn Michaels versus Triple H in the Helen Cell match at Bad Blood 2004. I was semi-tempted to swap it out, given what happened at the recent AEW event, and go for Bret Hart versus the One Two Three Kid as my WWE match pick. But I'm going to stick with stick with what I've got. But let's be honest, there's definitely going to be at least one five-star match in the Wrestling Observer. Yeah. And then after that, we're going to be entering G1 climax time. Now, the lineup suggests. This is not going to match recent years for five-star encounters. No, but you might still get a couple of nice ones in there. There's going to be at least one AEW All-Out match that we're going to be talking about next week. We won't say what it is yet. You know which one it will definitely be. Maybe there's other ones in there. Paul White versus QT Marshall. Let's go! And we also had Hiroshi Tanahashi take on Kojibushi. I don't yet know how popular that was, but, you know... It's Kotribushi and Hiroshi Tanahashi, so there's a decent chance that'll be one that we'll be talking about as well. Always potential. So, that's what you can expect. Whenever the next five-star matches are not on the pipe in the pipeline, then you're going to get Shawn Michaels versus Triple H, and then after that, who knows? We'll, um, I want us to do a Let Me Tell You Something Soon about the legacy of CM Punk. What is What has CM Punk's actual impact on wrestling been? Uh, that's definitely something I want to talk about soon. Okay, but okay. basically, next week, somehow, if Meltzer doesn't give five stars or higher to anything, then it will be Shawn Michaels versus Triple H, Bad Blood. Otherwise, it'll be whatever it is that Dave Meltzer's given five stars to, and maybe for the next two or three weeks, it might be that. But until then, Simon, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they do so? Uh, they can get in touch with me on Twitter, where I'm saying the Simon Cross free, free for the number of syringes I saw go into David Arquette's IV drip before I thought, what kind of ketamine is this? My name's Lorcan Mullen, that's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A-N. If you flip the first letter of words, nicked artery, that's what it is at the end of my surname. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, letterbox. If you put an at gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. You can get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. Lmtyspod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. But there's nothing left to say at this point, except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. And my name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us take you to the movies. And we hope you have a great time. Until the next time.